The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Have you ever been to summer camp before? For some of you, that might have been a long time ago. For others of you, that was maybe this last summer if COVID allowed it. Um, I want to tell you a story about the most unusual camp experience. So in the 1950s, there was a social experiment between two groups of unassuming boys at a place called Robber's Cove Camp. Now, their parents did know about this and gave their consent, just, just so that I can get that off the table before we dive in, because the experiment was asking the question, can we get two rival groups of boys to work together and like each other? And they studied hostilities between two groups of boys, and they created these hostilities by having, you know, these two groups of 12-year-olds arrive at this camp in different buses, not even with an awareness that the other group was there. They didn't know that. And then they, they asked each group to come up with their own name, make their own flag, have their own sort of rules and hierarchies. And, and then, you know, just naturally allowing these boys to discover that there was another group at this camp with their own flag and their own you know, sort of hierarchy in the way of being a group together. So these two groups were the Eagles and the Rattlers. And then uh, to raise the temperature in this social experiment, um, the, the organizers had these competitive games that they got these boys to compete in with their groups. So they did, you know, tug of war, for example, um, sand castle building contests and, um, and other games. Um, and the winners of these, these competitions would get some pretty big prizes and trophies. As you can imagine, the relationship between these two groups became increasingly intense and tense. And the rivalries formed. And also, at the same time, the group's cohesiveness, the Eagles and the Rattlers, they both sort of, they gelled, they they stuck together. They got, they got to know each other more. Now then, after creating this sort of hostility, this tension, this rivalry, then the, the organizers of this research decided that the, they, they wanted to try to resolve these conflicts. So how are they going to do that? So at first, they tried to just get them together to do fun things together. So they had like a movie night, for example. But then they just discovered that the groups just sat on opposite sides of the room they tried having a fun meal together, but that just ended in a food fight. Until they tried something different. Uh, in two different sort of set-up ploys, um, they got these groups to work together. First, they cut off the camp's water supply. So intentionally, they cut off water. Both groups needed water. And they actually forced both groups to work together to fix the problem. Then they staged a breakdown of the van that brought food to the camp and got the boys to pull the, the truck, the van, with their food to the camp by hand. 
And now over time, as these sorts of, you know, um, problems that they've faced, that they had to come together on a common mission, as, as they worked through these things, the rivalry walls began to break down. They stopped calling each other names as much. Um, what they thought of people in the other group improved. They even started to build friendships, the eagles and the rattlers, together. To the point that when they were, when the camp was done and they were, they were getting ready to go home, the boys had the idea that they would take the same bus. And the rattlers even brought drinks for the eagles. Now, why do I share this story? Because what's striking about this is that they had this shared, what, what brought them together, what broke down the walls of hostility, what broke down the rivalries, was this shared common vision to get water to the camp, to have food to eat. It was this common vision that allowed them to come together as a group. You know, we have a clear and concise missional purpose that brings us together. D.A. Carson talks about this in, uh, in, in one of his books, and I have a slide for this too, Johnny, thanks. Um, he says this, because this, this, this story about the camp is a little more similar to the church than maybe what we'd like to think, is that he says, ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends, but of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. And this is what I have on the screen. He says, Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus and owe him a common allegiance. Just like the two groups of boys at the summer camp, we are brought together for no other reason than a common allegiance and devotion to Jesus and for a common mission. We are, the local church is, the hope of the world. Now we've moved out of the pandemic and we're into a new reality, life after the pandemic. And in this reality, our council has wondered if our mission as a church has gotten a little bit blurry. Our council has found themselves asking a few important questions more and more often in our meetings together. Who are we? A lot has changed. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? So who are we? A lot has changed in the past few years of church. We've had leaders, leaders come and go. We've had members come and members go. The society and culture around us has changed. Where are we going? You know, what is our unique calling and identity in the world? What, what are we here to do? How do we best serve our increasingly changing communities and neighborhoods? And how are we going to get there? What's the plan? Why are we going to do what we are doing? And this has led us to engage a two-year uh, renewal journey through an organization called Church Renewal Lab. And Church Renewal Lab is an organization that is aimed to—hold on a second, I'll turn on my clicker. There we go. It's an organization aimed at developing intentional missional congregations that make more and better disciples 
who transform lives and communities for Christ. So just keep that up there for now, Johnny. And what this means is that over the next two years, we're going to be heading on a journey, focusing ourselves on our unique calling and our unique mission in the world. Now, this does not mean that we are going to halt all things church and take a massive step back and reevaluate everything. As we've had council conversations about do we enter into this two-year journey or not, one of the things that we've mentioned over and over again is that we have to keep moving forward even as we enter into this process. And this is good news because we are not starting from scratch. We are not starting from scratch as a church. And so then why do we do this? Why then, if we're not starting from scratch, do we enter into an intentional renewal journey? Well, some conversations I've had with members of the church um, have, have, you know, asked that question of me as, they, as they've learned about this. And, and um, one of the things that I have learned as we've entered into this journey is that renewal, and specifically church renewal, is not a checklist thing. You know, we may have done this work a little while ago, but that doesn't mean that we've concluded our work. Renewal is not a checklist. It is a way of being church together. And we've discovered a simple truth, and that is that either a church is on a constant path of renewal, a constant path of renewal, or on a sure path of decline. And so through this renewal journey, our hope is that we will learn the rhythms of continual renewal. How do we be church together in such a way that this isn't a checklist thing. This is just what we do. This is just who we are. And we're going to start by looking at Acts 2, 42 to 47, and learning from this spirit-driven church. We're going to go over this passage over a number of weeks, looking at different aspects of this passage. And, and the first thing that we're going to look at is the first three words of Acts 2, 42. And that is, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. These three words, I think, describe a Christian. A Christian is a devoted one, a devoted person. And what does it mean to devote yourself to something? Well, in the Bible, when, whenever the word devoted is used, it means to give something of yourself away. Or to set something of yourself apart. To, it means to set yourself apart. Now think about this. If your boss comes to you at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and they say, this report, this thing, it needs to get done by 5 o'clock tonight. And you look at your watch and you look at the report and you go, oh my goodness, how are we going to get this done by 5 o'clock tonight? There's no way. And so what do you do? You devote yourself to it. And what does that mean? You uh, set yourself apart in order to Get that task done. You turn off Facebook. You turn off Twitter. You silence your phone. You alleviate all other distractions. And you just focus on that one thing. Right? That report. Get it done. Or if you're a student and you're studying for midterms, right, then you know that you need to just turn off all other distractions. You can't hang out with friends in the same way. You've got you've to focus yourself on studying, on getting the best possible grade. You know, these, uh, the, Jesus says the same thing about following him. In Matthew 8, Jesus tells a story about uh, a few different people coming to him and saying that they want to follow him. And Jesus says to them, 
devote yourself to me. One person says, oh, I have to bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Which is a puzzling thing for us to hear, but what Jesus is essentially saying is that what I am doing right here, what Jesus is doing, his mission, his calling in the world is so important that it means everything else is peripheral. Everything else is pushed off to the side. This is the one thing for that person that is the most important. In Mark 10, we have another instance of this where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, I want to I be perfect. What do I have to do? And Jesus tells him, devote yourself to me. Devote yourself to me. He says, go and sell everything that you have. Then come and follow me. Give, even give your money to me. Give everything to me. Devote yourself to me. What I am doing is so important that you need to set your whole self apart in order to follow me. And this is the most fundamental question for us on our journey with Jesus. It's a question of devotion. Are you devoted? Do you set yourself aside? Set your own interests, set your own desires, and seek Jesus first and his church. Are you devoted to Jesus? Are you devoted to this local expression of the body of Christ that is First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church? Now, why would Jesus say this? Why would he ask such devotion of us? And first, and also, why would the early church, remember that we're talking about Acts 2 here, and the, the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the body of Christ. They devoted themselves to learning more about Jesus. They devoted themselves to certain practices. They were devoted. Why did they do that? Well, it's because Jesus Christ, when he was born at Christmas, when he came to live with us, when he took on human flesh, he devoted himself to us in the most real way, in the most intense way. Right? Jesus Christ had it all. He, had, he was sharing in the glory of the Father in heaven. He was ruling the world. He was in the most comfortable place. He was in the place that he belonged and he chose willingly. He chose to sacrifice of himself. He chose to identify with us. This is a little bit like if you were given a $1 trillion check. I know that's such an obscene amount of money. And a $1 trillion check that you could cash today and you chose instead to identify with street people on the corner of Jackson Square and live there. That's what Jesus did. Now, that, that, what, that shouldn't surprise us that Jesus identifies with the poor, identifies with the outcast, identifies with the lonely, with those on the margins, because that's what he did. He devoted himself to us. He sacrificed it all. And even further, right, he was stripped of everything when he went to the cross. He was crucified pretty much naked. He didn't have anything to his name. No money, no possessions. The soldiers cast lots for his clothes. He had nothing. He descended to the lowest. He devoted himself fully to our broken and rebellious humanity. Jesus devoted himself to us. That's why the early church devoted himself to him. It's because they knew they knew his devotion, and it changed them. 
and it changes us. That's why people become Christians is because of grace. Because why did Jesus do this? Why did he identify with this? Why did he go low? It is because then we could be lifted up. So that we could be lifted up. We could have rest. We could be filled with hope. Do you know the depth of the love of Christ? Do you think about his devotion to you when you think about your devotion to him? Does it inspire you? Does it push you on? Does it compel you? It compelled the early church. The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about uh, how often and how easily we can get confused at what the Christian faith is all about. And he says this. He says, to make it quite practical, I have a simple test. So whenever he would explain the gospel to people, he said he had a test to know if they were understanding what the Christian faith was all about. He says, he says, you know, I explained Christianity to them and now I say, are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And they hesitate. And they say, mm, I don't think so. I don't think I'm ready. And he would say, well, why? Why don't you think you're ready? And they would say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm good enough to be a Christian. And he says, at that moment, at once, he knows he's been wasting his breath. Because they're still thinking in terms of themselves. They're still thinking it's something that they have to do. Rather, he says, it sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But that's a very denial of the faith because the very essence of the Christian faith is that he is good and I am in him. Right? Grace is Christianity. Grace is following Jesus. He is good and I am in him. Therefore, I am free. That's the Christian faith. This means that your worst mistake, the thing that you are most embarrassed about, ashamed about, feel guilty about, in Jesus, you are in him, meaning it's covered. When he died, it died. You're set free. Being a Christian is the lightest thing we could do. It sets us free. It lifts the guilt. It lifts us up. Now, I've journeyed with uh, this congregation for over four years now. And one of the things that I've seen throughout these four years is your devotion to him. Your devotion to Jesus, your devotion to this church. And it inspires me. It moves me. And there's times when I've had conversations with you or I've seen how you live. And I've been ministered by you. It's been a blessing to be the pastor of this church. You know, I think of our devotion to CAP and its clients. So many of you set yourself aside in order to make this ministry happen. It's amazing. I think of people in this congregation who have made an intentional career decision that has limited them in some way so that they may be faithful to what they feel like God is asking them to devote them themselves to. I think about um, those of you who have developed and are committed to developing a nurtured relationship with Jesus through his word, through prayer, so that when suffering has entered your life, you're able to be a testament to the grace of Jesus Christ. And I've been blessed by those conversations. 
There's devotion in this church, and it's amazing. It's so beautiful. But there's another side to this. And I want to remind us of this this morning, is that we are all broken people. And things fall apart for us when we lose sight of the cross. When our motivation is not based on the grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. The idealistic view of the church in Acts 2, 42 to 47, where everything is hunky-dory and perfect, breaks down only a few chapters later. Ananias and Sapphira enter the scene. I don't know if you know the story or not, but essentially these two people who were part of this, this idealistic view, and they lie. They lie about how much money they were giving and if it was all of the share of the property or not, and they reap the consequences of that. But why do they lie? That's a, that's a good question to ask. Why did they feel like they had to lie? Because they, they lost sight of the cross. They felt they had to. Why did they have to? They didn't. The grace of Jesus was enough, but they lost sight of it. And this leads us, I think, to see that our sin problem, each of us has sin in our lives. Our sin problem is a devotion problem. There's areas of our life that we still haven't handed over to Jesus, that we still haven't set apart for Jesus, that we still haven't given to him. And for me, when I, when I took a look at my life this week, as I was thinking about this, asking myself the hard questions too, I realized, you know, I think I was, you know, many years ago as I was feeling a call to ministry, I came to terms with and devoted my career path or my vocation to Jesus long before I've devoted my wallet to him. <laughs> and I think that's still a work in progress, and I'm thankful for the grace, but I think that I, you know, I have areas of my life, too, that I still am working on handing over and tr entrusting to Jesus. Areas of my life that I need to trust him, that he is who he says he is, that he has covered it, that I don't need to worry, that I can give it over. What about you? What in your life needs devotion to Jesus? Maybe you're approaching retirement or you're in retirement and you're worried about the future. Worried about what, whether or not you'll have enough. You'll be healthy enough. You'll be whatever enough. It's a devotion question. What about our relationships? Our relationships with people in our lives or even in this church. Are we devoted to them? Or are we still just half in, half out? Are we fearful of getting too involved in people's messiness. What about our attention to sports? Are we too devoted to certain things in our lives that's taking away from our devotion to Jesus? What about our internet history? What does that say about our devotion? Internet history tells a story about a person's life a lot more than we like to realize. What about our future? If you're a student, what does it mean to be devoted to Jesus and, and handing over your future to him? Saying, I don't know all the answers. I don't know where I'll end up, but I know that Jesus will see me through. I'm going to devote this to him. 
You know, if Jesus has really devoted himself to you in such a way that everything in your life is taken care of, he went to the depths of the depths of the depths of darkness in this world so that you could be lifted up. There's nothing that we have to be worried about. It means we can give our whole lives to him. And that's what it means to be church together. We are the devoted ones. Remember, we come together not for a shared race, a shared income level, a shared political view, but a shared allegiance, a shared devotion to Jesus Christ and to each other. What are you devoted to? You know, through this renewal journey that we go through, um, I pray that our church may grow more and more in our devotion to Jesus and our devotion to each other. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we are so moved when we uh, remember the Christmas story that you uh, became a little baby born in a manger in a dirty little place. Lord, that you um, identified with the lowest of the low, that you came that we may be lifted up, lifted up out of our brokenness, that our sin may be forgiven, that our, our guilt may be, may be atoned for, that our shame may be, may be healed. Lord, I pray that, um, that we may keep this front and center in our minds as we live our lives, that your grace may change everything that we do, may it transform our lives, may it transform our community. As we enter into this renewal journey, we pray a blessing on it. We pray that we may move forward in this and be on a constant path of renewal. Lord, that we may bless our city and each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.